0: Thank you Pine Hills. Were they good? And thank you very much for this. I'll, um, I will uh, take a look at all the things you read. It's like getting your yearbook, you know. At the end you always go back and look at what all your friends wrote. So I, I will enjoy uh, reading this this afternoon. Um, sorry about the latte crack. Sometimes honesty gets out of my mouth before wisdom gets a chance to shut it. You guys know how that works, right? Uh, We're beginning a new series today. um, If you've perhaps noticed that there's a little bit of a change on the wall behind me. Um, We're talking about building faith. Have you noticed that that Nebuchadnezzar's dream is missing its head? Good. I was hoping you were going to be at least that observant on what was happening. Um, We are talking about some of the major prophecies of Scripture, but I want to make sure that as we talk about them, that we talk about what they're really all about. And we often talk about this one, probably one of the most famous ones in Scripture. We talk about it as if it's about the statue. We talk about this dream as if it's really about the statue, and it's not about the statue. That's not the point of the dream. I'll demonstrate that with with, the... Our little bit of look at the scripture that's that's in this passage, but we talked about Daniel and his history with God and his experience with God through this book at the beginning of the year. And some of you will remember that we talked about this book as it related to the walk of this man, this person who was experiencing all of these things. And um, I promised you at that point that we would cover the prophecies. And so this is my fulfilling of that promise from the beginning of the year. We're going to cover the, the major prophecies of Daniel, and we're going to pick up a couple in Revelation also in this uh, in this time together. Not all today, over the next few weeks. And um, as we talk about it today, I just want to start you with Daniel, remind you where we're talk, what we're talking about. Israel. This is going to be fun. Israel was uh, Israel was in captivity. They had been sent off because of their misdeeds, because of their behaviors. And as they are in captivity, um, Daniel and several of the people of his particular um, rank in society have been placed in a, a specific training session, training uh, segment, to try to learn how to be wise men for Babylon. And as Daniel and his friends graduate, this, this event takes place. The king has this dream, and I shared it with the kids, so hopefully you've got the background of the story. They, I, the, the dream that Daniel is encountering here as he, as he begins to tell this story, as the story begins to unfold, is one that Nebuchadnezzar had had, and the dream is terrifying to him. Now you're going you're gonna to have to stop and remember when you had a dream and it was scary to you. I don't know if you had nightmares when you were a kid or if you ever had nightmares in your life. I had a recurring one when I was a little boy. Someone had told me a story that was really frightening to me. I lived in a place where there was a creek and um, it was uh, at times looked more like a river and at times looked like a stream. So it got the name in between. And as I lived near this creek, I played there. I was there all the time. And one of my uncles, now you all have those uncles, right? Right? One of my uncles decided to tell me a scary story about this dream. I don't know where he heard it or if he made it up on the spot, but I was about six or seven years old. It made a huge impact on me. It frightened me a lot. In fact, that dream kept coming into my sleep, and it recurred over and over for the next several years. Thank you very much, Uncle. It was my uncle Walt actually? I wish my mom was here so she could go tell him how a terrible guy he was to me when I was a little kid. My, but the story kept appearing in my dream, and it was one of those stories where someone's chasing you and you can't get away. I was running through this house at a part of the creek where there was no house, miraculously, where I used to swim in this creek. A house appeared. I don't know how it appeared, but I was running through this house and fearful that this uh, person in this house was going to catch me, and it was just terrifying. I want you to think about the last time you were really frightened when you woke up from a dream, because that's what this story's context is. This, this man, Nebuchadnezzar, is frightened when he wakes up. He's terrified when he wakes up. That's why he's going to ask these people for help. If this were an ordinary dream, just, you know, the normal kind of stuff, he's not going to go ask for help. He's a king. He doesn't ask for help for minor stuff. He can handle minor stuff. This is a big deal, a major problem for him as the story unfolds in Daniel 2. We're going to be jumping right into the middle of the story. If you have your Bible with you, even if you have your device with you, you want to pick up the other parts of the story feel free. I'll be putting the the salient pieces that I want to talk about on the screen. Oh, I missed one. I want to start with that first passage at the beginning. Daniel chapter 2:20 20, verse 28. I think this is the key To the whole passage. The wise men have been unable to tell him about the dream. Daniel comes in the king says, Are you able to tell me about my dream? And Daniel says, No, I'm not. But there is a God in heaven. There is a God in heaven. And he reveals secrets to men. There is a God in heaven. If you could get just that... As the whole thing that you took home from Daniel 2 today, you would get real close to its point. But there is a God in heaven. And then we're going to skip down to verses 29 and 30 and just pick up some pieces. While your majesty was sleeping, you dreamed about coming events. By the way, I'm going to do this from the New Living Translation because you're used to hearing it in the uh, King James, the New King James. So I'm doing it from a translation to sort of shift your thinking about it and make you listen to it a little bit. Uh, While your majesty was sleeping, you dreamed about coming events. He reveals secrets, has shown you what is going to happen. And it is not because I am wiser than anyone else that I know the secret of your dream, but because God wants you to understand what was on your heart, what was in your heart. Why does Daniel tell him that the dream took place? So that you will understand what was in your heart. God has revealed this to me so you will understand what he was revealing to you. Then the dream. In your vision, your majesty, you saw standing before you a huge shining statue of a man. It was, fright- it was a frightening sight. The head of the statue was fine gold. Its chest and arms were silver. Its belly and thighs were bronze. Its legs were ironed. Its feet were a combination of iron and baked clay. Let me ask you a question. Is there anything scary about this part of the dream? If you saw this, would you be scared? Raise your hand if you'd be scared. Then I'm assuming no one was scared by that part. So he saw a statue. Big deal. Not scary. It wasn't a scary statue, but it was a scary dream. So far, nothing to be afraid of. As you watched, a rock was cut out from a mountain, but not by human hands. It struck the feet. Of iron and clay, smashing them to bits. And the whole statue was crushed into small pieces of iron and clay, bronze, silver, and gold. Then the wind blew them away without a trace like chaff on a threshing floor. But the rock that knocked the statue down became a great mountain that covered the whole earth. Would this be likely a little more frightening? Now, some of the questions, some of the things scholars have often said about this statue is perhaps Nebuchadnezzar saw his own face on the statue. Because if you just saw some statue out there getting crushed, it wouldn't be so frightening. But if you saw your own face on the statue and then you saw the statue get crushed, then you might have a reason to be afraid, right? We don't know for certain, but this, I think, puts some validity, puts some support behind their argument that perhaps his face was the face he saw on the statue. Crushed, smashed to smithereens, blown away by the wind until nothing was left, and then the mountain grew up and filled the entire earth. Now, this is probably not the most frightening dream I've ever heard of. I'm guaranteeing you that the one that I was having in the middle of the night as I was a little boy was a lot scarier than this. Running away from that woman night after night made me not want to go to sleep. Because I was afraid she was going to be there again. She never caught me. I never got away. Glad I don't have that dream anymore. Boy, I hope bringing it to memory to tell you about it doesn't happen tonight. You find out a heart attack in the middle of the night, you know what happened. Whatever it is about this, something causes him to be very frightened as a result of this dream. So what's the point of his dream? If you just saw that much of it, what was the point of it? It's the rock, right? It's not the statue. It's the rock. When we talk about this dream, what do we always talk about? The statue. And you know what we do with the rock? We throw it in in 30 seconds at the end. Oh, and by the way, there was this rock, grew up, became the whole world. It was awesome. Great. Fine. We ignore the whole point of this dream. We, in fact, get this dream completely backward. The main emphasis of the dream is what happens at the end, not what happens at the beginning. the The rest of it is there for a reason, which we'll talk about. But let's remember the point of the dream is the rock. This rock cut out without human hands strikes the statue on the feet, crushes it, completely crushes it. It's blown away till it's all gone. And then the rock comes up and fills the entire earth. The God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed or conquered. This is Daniel's description of the point of the dream. Down in verse 44. The point of this dream is... There's going to be a kingdom set up by God that will never be destroyed or conquered. Empire after empire comes and goes, comes and goes, comes and goes. And when God comes, He never goes away. There is a God in heaven who reveals secrets to men. And when He sets up His kingdom, it will last forever. And all the other kingdoms of the earth will be gone like chaff blown away by the wind and just as significant and important. So this is the deal. What is the point of the rest of this story? Here's my argument. The reason the statue has all these parts and all this cool information is to build faith in the part that hasn't come yet. You with me? So here's how it works. At the beginning of this, none of this has been cleared yet. None of this has happened yet, right? Just say yes because I'm right. <clears throat> none of this has happened when he first hears the, stri- hears the about the vision. None of it. The king, king of Babylon, he's there. He's still around. His kingdom is still around. Nothing has happened to him. In fact, he will die, and the kingdom of Babylon will still be there, right? So Nebuchadnezzar actually never sees the fruit of this dream. He never sees this come to fruition. In fact, he w- it will happen after he has gone by a long time. He's gone about 50, 60 years by the time this actually takes place. So Nebuchadnezzar, stay with me. Nebuchadnezzar's faith, which builds through the rest of this story, isn't built on the statue. It's built on his relationship with Daniel, the faithfulness of the man who's walking there in front of him, not the dream that he saw of a statue in the past. But, once the Persians come along and the Babylonians are gone, anybody who knew about Daniel's dream could go, Step one, done. Right? And now. Because of the dream, your faith could grow. Get it? So for everybody who would ever see this statue throughout history, for everybody who would ever be able to walk this process down, wherever you found yourself, if you were down there with the Greeks and you heard about Daniel's dream and Daniel said, oh, yeah, the, the, the according to my dream or according or that you were told, according to Daniel's dream, the Babylonians would come and go and they did. The Persians would come and go and they did. And now we're with the Greeks. Now, I'm sorry, Greeks, but the Bible also says you're going to come and go as well. And then with you're the Romans and you're down there in the legs, you say, look, the Babylonians came and went, the Persians came and went, the Greeks came and went, we are coming and we're going to go. According to the dream, no matter where you stood in the historical portion of this, your faith would be building on what had gone before. Your faith would be strengthened, encouraged, developed, furthered by what had gone before. So the point of Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece and Rome and the dividing of Rome is so that you can have faith faith in the rock cut out without human hands that would strike the base of the statue, smear it all over the face of the earth. It would be blown away and this would come up and become the kingdom of God. You see, all of the statuesque part of this is to build your faith for the coming of Jesus. It's to build your faith in the final act. We have been through Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece and Rome We're down there in the toenails of the feet of iron and clay somewhere. We're way down at the very end of this thing. And we're not supposed to be afraid. We're supposed to be feeling trust. We're supposed to be saying, look, God knew that and that and that and that. And you know what's next? You know what's next? We win. You know what's next? The second coming. You know what's next? Jesus. We're supposed to be excited about that part. We're supposed to be saying, hey, look at all of that stuff is gone. It's happened. So we're down in the toenails somewhere at the end of this thing. And Jesus is coming next. And you're supposed to be getting real excited about that because God has been faithful throughout the generations, throughout history for thousands of years. And here we are sitting on the edge of eternity saying, come, Jesus, come. That's what's supposed to happen with this statue. That's what we're supposed to see when we get here. The problem is we spend all our time looking at improving all those pieces at the end, and we forget the statue is really about Jesus. The story is really about the second coming. The point of it all is Jesus is coming again. So Jesus was sitting with his disciples last night on earth with them before the resurrection and they're sitting around the table they're sharing that last supper passing around the the emblems that have become familiar to us they've finished the passover meal and jesus says to disciples one of you will betray me Do you remember what the disciples do next The disciples start asking the question that is so revealing of their characters and of where they stand in their relationship with God. They all ask, is it me? Now, would you ask Jesus that question? Or would you be saying, not me, maybe him. Now, he I question. I've questioned him all along. Not sure why you brought him along anyway. Right. Isn't that how we would handle this? Aren't most of us going to be saying, uh, yeah, maybe maybe, uh, John, he's kind of young, he's not really with everybody else. I think maybe John. Wouldn't you be looking for somebody else to blame? The disciples all say, is it me? Am I the one? Because they question their own relationship. They know the fallacy of their heart. They know the brokenness of their insides. They know the sin that has a grip on them. And they say, Lord, I could see myself doing that. Is it me? Is it me? I hope it's not me. You know who doesn't? All the rest of these guys might fail you, Lord. I've looked at them. I've weighed them all out. They're wanting. Me? I got this. You called me Rocky, and I'm in to the end. Solid as a rock. Yeah, Mr. Little Girl makes you cry and deny Jesus three times. Peter. That's going to be a tough story in heaven, don't you think? You think maybe God will just wipe that story away from our minds so that we don't get there and ask Peter, "What? In the, why were you scared of a little girl? Sitting around a campfire with a little girl, why would that scare you so much? Or would we more likely say that would have scared the daylights out of me too? Maybe. The important piece, the reason I've taken you off into the upper room is what Jesus says next. He says, I tell you this beforehand so that when it happens, you will believe that I am the Messiah. He said, I'm I'm revealing the future to you. I'm revealing that one of you is going to deny me. And when Judas does it, when this happens and one of this inner circle of ours breaks out and actually turns me over to the Romans, when it happens, I want you to look at it. I want you to see it. And I want you to understand that, that because of the fulfillment of that prophecy, you can believe. We have often used prophecies as an attempt to predict the future. That's not the main point of prophecy. It's a nice side effect. I mean, if you're sitting back there with the Greeks and you're looking at the Romans, you could look at them and say, look, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece. Hey, they're going to come, but they're going to go too. Saw Daniel's prophecy. They're not making it through either. It's nice to be able to be right. I mean, uh, uh, Arthur Maxwell When Hitler was storming across Europe and it looked like he was going to win, he was going to just take over and unite Europe. Arthur Maxwell published a copy of the signs of the times. And in the signs of the times, he told the story of Daniel's dream. And he said, I don't care what Hitler thinks he's going to do. I don't care that the whole world's afraid of him. The Bible says Europe is not going to be sticking together because it's like iron and clay that don't stick together. They don't actually work. We just saw in our own time another experience of this. Men have tried over and over again to unite Europe. We just saw the Brits bail on the European Union. Brexit, a brand new word, the British exit. They bailed on the European Union and the whole thing's looking a little crumbly now. Maybe like iron and clay trying to stick together but not actually able to do it. You know that when the First World War started, all the participants were cousins? The heads of state, all the major heads of state were cousins in the First World War as it got started. Because they had tried everything to stick together and they've never been able to do it. Because the Bible says, look, it's not going to happen. And here we are in the years of those kings, in the days of those kings, in the toenails of the statue at the very end, waiting for the last piece a stone cut out from a mountain without hands that comes, strikes on the base, on the feet of the statue, crushes it. It's blown away by the wind and a new kingdom is created by God. You see, the point of this thing is Jesus is coming. And he's coming soon when you get to the feet. He's coming now. The point of the prophetic march through history is to build faith in the final act. So, my question for you is how are you feeling about the final act? How are you, particularly in your own little head, feeling about the final act? Is this a dream or a nightmare? Is this exciting or is this nerve wracking? When you talk about the second coming, when you think about the second coming, do you look at it and say, oh, my Jesus is coming? Or do you say, oh, my Jesus is coming? Amen. Which one do you use? Which phrase, which which piece of your heart? Are you a little bit terrified by this? Are you like, oh, no, Jesus is coming. It's kind of a nightmare thing. I just "Oh no. Are you all about the layaway plan? I don't want to do that. I don't want to be there for that. Or are you about, hey, I want to be awake, alive, and see it all, and see Jesus arrive? Have you read Revelation? Have you figured out we win? Yeah. Go to the end of the book. If you don't know, read the last three chapters. It's all right there. We win. It is true. Thank you very much for reminding us last week. We had a baptism last week, which was awesome. Yeah, man. Then one of the participants of the baptism, we will leave him unnamed. He's just over there stood up at the end and said something that we've talked about in this church for a while and we'd kind of forgotten about it. He put up his arms as he came out of the water and said, We win. Amen. Thank you for the reminder. The book says we win. You read the end of the article. Read the end of the story. When you get to the last page, it says we win. Is that something to be afraid of? But yet we sit there on pins and needles about the second coming. Worried about the second coming. Why is this a nightmare? During the reign of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed or conquered. Why is that frightening to us? The answer is pretty simple, right? We don't know if we're in. We're not sure whether we're on the winning side or not. Right? Isn't that what's scary? Because we know the alternate, alternate on this story too. There's, a, there's two halves. There's winner's and there's losers. Can we just clear up who wins here right away? Those who are following Jesus are on the winning side. Now, I don't want you to look at your neighbor and question their, their following. Stay right in your own seat. That's the only question you have to answer. Am I following Jesus? You don't have to answer how good you're at. you are at it because you're terrible at it. I can answer that for you. But it's not any different than David or Moses or Elijah or Jeremiah or Peter, Paul and Mary. Uh, Peter, Paul. Uh, See, all you people from the remember the 60s, remember that those of you who are under about 40. You just went, what? It's an old band. Look it up on Google. But the point is, the Bible explains over and over and over again that we are not good at this. But God is gracious. Over and over again. Why is David called a man after God's own heart? We have the record of his life. Because God is gracious. Why is Moses, who blew it so bad he wasn't even allowed to go into the promised land, who killed the guy before he even started following Jesus, who was terrible as a leader half of the time. Why is that guy getting in? Why does the Bible say, yeah, he's in. In fact, we've got evidence. Because he shows up on the Mount of Transfiguration. Not only do we, are we promised he's in, we can prove he's in. How did he get in? Graciousness of God. Because God, listen carefully to this next phrase, it will change your life and change your understanding of the second coming. Jesus is trying to get you in, not keep you out. He's doing everything he can to get you in, not to keep you out. The cross is absolute proof of that. He will go to the length, to the absolute emptying of heaven to try to get you in, not to keep you out. This story is a happy story. There will be lots of empires that show up. Babylonians, Medo-Persians, Greeks, Romans, the whole of Europe. It's all going to come. It's going to go. But then Jesus is going to come. And we live in the bottom part of this statue. We live somewhere at the end of this thing, in the days of those kings. The days of those kings, that's now. That's the European kings. That's the division of Rome. That's us. That's where we are now. We've been living in that for a long time. Jesus is coming. Is it good news? Is it bad news? There's a guy named George who worked in a machine shop. He wasn't really a machinist. He was, he was a guy who kept everything else clean so the machinists could work. He wiped down the machines. He, he swept up the floors. If you've ever worked in a machine shop, I worked in a machine shop a little bit. The the, 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 the tailings of the steel especially and the... And the uh, The other metals kept very, very sharp, and you can cut yourself really easily on them. And to keep them clean and keep them out of the way allows you to keep moving. That was George's job. He just kept cleaning up. He was constantly moving through the shop, sweeping things up, keeping things clean, wiping down machines, making sure they were ready so that the the operator didn't come in here, lay his hand down on the machine, cut himself wide open, and stop the whole day's production. That was George's responsibility. And George wore a pair of coveralls. George's coveralls got messy from this job because he just he was always in the midst of the grease and the grime. He's picking stuff up all day long and throwing it away and so he's getting this stuff on his on his clothes all the time. And it came time for this to for the for the uh for the end of the shift, and everybody's kind of wrapping up. You know how people anticipate the end, the, the end of the day? Everybody kind of straggles in at the beginning of the day when you're going to work. But everybody's ready. When that clock is about to strike five, everybody's sort of cleaning up and waiting. They're blowing off and keeping their machine ready to go. They've closed down the job. They put the last one. They're just watching that clock, watching like People at church, about noon, everybody watches the clock. Except around here, it's eleven fifteen, eleven thirty. You start looking at the clock. I see you. As as that day was coming to an end, everybody's kind of getting prepped. The guys who are running the machines, they've taken their coveralls off. They've hung them up. They're wiping the last bit down, and they're watching the last couple of minutes click away. And there's George. He's in his dirty old coveralls. One of the operators, the guy who's actually telling the story, says, "I, I looked at George, who I knew was a believer. George would wander around singing songs, praising Jesus all the time in the middle of the shop. And so I knew George was a believer. And so as he's wandering around, kind of, you know, still in his dirty old coveralls. The seconds are going by. It's almost time for us to go. And I said, George, are you ready? Because I'm ready. So, well, you don't look ready. He said, man, it's, it's almost time to go. You're still in your grimy old coveralls. At that point, George revealed something that this guy had never known before. He zipped down his coveralls and he pulled them back to reveal a perfectly clean and beautiful set of clothes to go home in. And as he dropped his coveralls on the floor, picked them up, hung them on the nail, he was ready to go home. And he said, I'm always ready. So that I don't have to be worrying about getting ready. It's like being ready. For Jesus to come. You see, if you have the robe of righteousness, you don't need any other preparation. If you've accepted the sacrifice of Jesus as your own, if you've accepted the blood to wash away your sins, if you accepted his covering, then this is a great story. This is a powerful, wonderful story. Everything has disappeared. Everything has come and gone except the last bit. Everything has come and gone except the final answer to the prayer of Jesus. Do you remember the prayer of Jesus? We go through this like it doesn't mean anything either. We say this and we kind of, we kind of recite it without thinking about the words, Our Father in heaven. Again, this is in the New uh, Living Translation to just give you a pause to think. Our Father in heaven, may your name be kept holy. May your kingdom come soon. You know, Jesus said, pray like this. Right? He said, pray like this. This This is the model. This is what you should do. Pray like this. As you pray, you should be asking a simple question. You should be praying a certain thing. You say, may your kingdom come soon. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. May your kingdom come soon. That the prayer on the, on, the, on the lips of the believers over and over again, that prayer keeps repeating. We'd like you to come soon, Lord Jesus. We'd like you to come soon. This world's a mess. We're in trouble. There's a lot of messy things going on here. Could you come? Would you come soon? You know, the Millerites were sort of the, the, the root family, the, 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 that, that, that background where we all came from, where Seventh-day Adventism was born. The Millerites were looking for Jesus to come with joy and excitement. Did you know that they were actually excited about Jesus coming and so many Adventists today, so many Christians today look at Jesus return with angst. Can I just suggest, can I, can I insist that it's the wrong attitude that as we look at Daniel, Daniel says, Hey, God told you that would happen and he told you this would happen and he told you this would happen and he told he told you all of that you can trust him he knows what he's doing and you know what the next thing is the stone the final act the closing of the dream and the end of time and with a smile on your face you can say covered by the blood washed And wrapped in the robe of righteousness. His grace is still here today. In my ups and my downs, he has me covered. And so, I look with joy and anticipation to the last day of earth's history. Sin is no more. Sadness is no more. Sorrow is no more. Pain is no more. Death is no more. Jesus comes. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, that you are trying to get us into heaven. That you are doing everything possible to make it our destination. Today we surrender to you. We surrender our desire to do this by ourselves on our own. We surrender our pride. We surrender our attitudes. We surrender the belief that we can change your heart toward us. We accept your sacrifice. We believe that your sacrifice was big enough for us, big enough for me. we ask that you would take us by the hand that you would take us home to stand with you on that great pl- in that great place you have prepared we look forward to that day we look forward to your coming we look forward to the blessing we await you with joy and expectation anticipation because we win It's guaranteed because of Jesus' resurrection and because he won. We choose it, we accept it, we believe it today. In Jesus' name, amen.